Welcome to Biz Break, a podcast where we talk about everything business. My name is Jeff Hicks, and I'll be your host. Welcome to Biz Break, everyone. We have an excellent show today. Our guest is Merle Guth. And let me give you a little background uh, on Merle so that you'll know who he is. He um, grew up in Salmon, Idaho, and his dad and family from generations back were outfitters and guides in central Idaho in the Salmon area. So they're very familiar. In fact, they had a lodge on the main Salmon River and, um, and, and floated the middle fork of the Salmon and uh, took guests down the river and uh, in the fall and winter they uh, did fishing and hunting and so Merle grew up on the river and he'll tell you about those experiences and the the theme of our show today is um, has to do with work ethic and taking the things that we learn in our youth when we're kids and applying them later on in life. So in the 70s, we, uh, we contracted with Firestone Rubber Company yeah. to, um, uh, to, build, to custom build these boats. And they, so they've got a 40-inch air tube, and they're 22 feet long, and there's only seven of them in the entire world. And we had five, the Forest Service had one, and one of the Oregon outfitters that runs the Middle Fork bought, bought one. That's amazing. And that's all there is in the whole world. And I'm not kidding you, to this day, they are still the best sweet boat. I, I've run, boy, I've run J-tubes and, and yeah. other people's sweet boats. They just, they just aren't the same. They, they just aren't the same boat. They're, How heavy are those, Merle? Are, are those very hard to uh, navigate to to steer? No, they're actually, uh, they're actually really easy to steer. The, the way we had them set up, you could do things with a with that sweet boat that you couldn't do with an oar boat. Yeah, and uh, and we were contracted by the Forest Service all the time to take. Uh, big loads down down the middle fork. In fact, one time we took a bridge, all the parts for a bridge down the middle fork, and we did it in four boats. And boy, I'll tell you what, they were they were heavy. And the thing about a sweet boat is the heavier it is, the faster it goes. Okay. And, and it actually, if you think about it, it slides, it slides on the water. Okay. And, and the faster it, go, it goes, the more the easier it is to steer. You just kind of point it like a big truck. Yeah. So it kind of works oddly like a keel. And boy, when we were hauling that those those bridge pieces, those were those were heavy, heavy, heavy boats. And we had to take an extra guy along to get them stopped. You had to, you had to <laughs> in order to get them stopped. You had to just throw somebody out with a rope and say, "Okay, wrap that around a tree." Good luck. Sacrifice your body. (laughs) (laughs) So it was was really important because we couldn't miss the landing. You know, we're going on down to the end of the road and that's how it's going to be. So so if you remember the the May boys, I had little Brett May as my uh, as my swamper and I threw him out with a rope. I said, 
whatever you do, sacrifice life and limb, but you get that rope around a tree for heaven's sake. <laughs> so what did you have to take those bridge parts apart or did you take them uh, like piece by piece how did that work so they flew them into uh the flying b in a dc3 okay and they were they were great big things and uh and we just and we said you know the boats are 20 22 foot long so if, if you can keep the bundles to within 20 feet we can take them anywhere you want to take them yeah and, uh, and it was uh it was a wild time. It made made us some good money. Oh, bet. Forest Service paid us well for that. That's really <laughs> cool. That, that's the kind of stuff that people don't hear much about. But it's oh, they don't. Yeah, they don't. Good old rolled, ingenuity. Through that rolled up, they weigh five hundred and sixty pounds. You could roll two of them into a Cessna two hundred six. Wow. Uh, and stand them up side by side and that was that was about a that was about a load you could put a few more things in there but we used to fly them two at a time in a 206 back there and yeah yeah, yeah that was those were good times it was a lot of fun <laughs> Merle, back in those days um you still have those those sweet boats don't you are you guys still using them somewhere we sold all of that out. Um, the only one that I know for sure, where is the fella in Salmon that owns the bakery there? Okay. Is, uh, what's his last name? McCullough? Why can't I remember his last name? Anyway, the fella that owns the, the, the bakery there in Salmon bought my old boat. Oh, really? He got it he, and he farms that out, rents that out with him and the boat. Uh, to, to outfitters to, to run both the middle fork and the salmon. I see. That's the only one that I know where it is. The rest of them, I, I have no idea where they are. Well, those, those things would be like, they should, build, they should be in a museum somewhere. They ought to be. Yeah. yeah that's pretty cool. <laughs> they ought to be. Yeah. Well, you know, I remember uh, when I was a teenager, I worked out there at the airport, and your dad had that hangar right there by the pumps. And he kept his plane. It seemed like there was just his plane in there. But was there? A, did he share that hangar with somebody? There was two. Um, okay. My uncle, my uncle Bill, had a, okay. had a blue and silver uh, back back when that hangar was being used. He had a blue and silver one eighty. Okay. And, and Dad had a uh, a yellow and silver one eighty. Uh huh. Um, and those were that, and all of our uh, all of our boat gear and all of our stuff. We kept all yeah. of our all of our uh, uh, middle fort gear in that hangar as well. Yeah, those were good times. Sure. Well, what I want to do, Merle, is uh, is just make some connections between growing up, doing stuff just like you know you're talking about, and then moving along into our, you know, where we're at now, what kinds of things did you carry with you from, from your, you know, probably before your teenage years, you were out working with your dad before you were a teenager. Oh yeah. I started my, my first, well, even before that, uh, my first middle fork float trip was when I was six. Okay. Dad, uh, dad said we had to learn to, we had to learn to swim before we could go, and, and uh, I learned to swim when I was six years old. So I started 
you know, it, in family businesses, you don't actually work. You're you're a slave, and yep. and, and the slave uh, the, the the child slave trade starts starts real young. Yep. But when when you say you know what do you carry with you, that list is so long. Uh, it, I, you know, I I and, and and transferring that on to my own my own children and those I know. Um, is a daunting task because there's just so much. And, and really what I did, I, I chose when, when, when Connor got old enough to work, why I sent him, I sent him to, uh, to Alaska to work at the lodge for three or four or five years. And, and he, he learned how to work, you know, he learned, he learned what it meant to work. He, he learned that, uh, that when when it was time to work, that's what you did. And yeah. when it was time to play, in fact, Dad, Dad had a, a, a kind of a deal that he made with with all of us, uh, us kids. And it was, you know, when 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 there's work to be done, we all work. And when the work's over with, then we all play. Yeah. And, and it was a it, it was a it was a great way to to instill that work ethic into kids because you realize that the, the, the job was something we all had to do. It wasn't something that one person did or, or a, a couple of people did. It was when there was work to be done, everybody worked. And, yeah. and when work was done, then everybody got a chance to play. So it, it was really an attitude that, that we grew up with. That, um, that, and it was hard work. You know, we, you always took advantage of the cool air flying into the middle fork. And, and so we would start flying at you know four o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And you had to load all those, all those, you know, it took about 14, 15 um, aircraft loads of gear to get a, to get a 30 person trip on the middle fork. Yeah. And so all of that had to be done in the, in the two and a half days prior to the, to the, the trip started and we had an eight day turnaround. So you'd have a five day, a five day trip and then two and a half days to get ready. And, and it was that way from the 24th of June until about the 7th of, of September. And that's all you did. I mean, there, there wasn't any much playtime. Yeah. All the playtime that we had was, was, uh, was fishing and doing things on the river trips because that was a lot easier work than, uh, than those three days in between the trips were. I remember Merle, there was a, a short period of time where you could put in at dagger falls. Um, did you guys ever use that, uh, ramp there? Did you always fly in? How, how did it work for you? We did some trips off the top off dagger falls. Um, but my, my uncle and my dad both decided that in order to uh, to justify an airplane habit, we had to have a reason to have an airplane. Right. So in order to uh, in order to keep that addiction going, we we pretty much, you know, we we do a trip or two off the top every year, but mostly what we did was from Indian Creek down. Yeah. And and the reason really, I mean, if you get right down to being honest, the reason was we love to fly. Yeah. And, Ed and Billy loved to fly, and they uh, they wanted to they wanted to, to fly a lot more than they wanted to deadhead cars and boats from uh, you know from Salmon all the way up through Stanley and Cape Horn right. and, and around the Boundary Creek. So 
You know, the first time I flew into Indian Creek was uh, with Dick Williams. And as I recall, somebody there in Salmon and Dick, maybe it was Dick's plane, but I don't think so. It was a big, um, I think it was a yellow colored uh, otter. Do you remember that plane, the single engine? Or a beaver. It was a beaver. Yeah, that was was Dennis Morgan's beaver. Okay. Dennis had a, a beaver and a mall. Okay. And I think the mall was what he augured it in. Um, he, he was doing some flying oh, down, well, down the river north of Salmon just a little ways and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and hit the hill. But that, that yellow beaver was Dennis Morgan's airplane. I heard, heard about that situation. It's pretty unfortunate. Um, he was one of my favorite people. He'd come around and visit with me while I was out there working at the airport. He always had something fun to talk about. <laughs> Dennis was a character. He, he had a he had a great personality. He yeah. was a lot of fun. He was a lot of fun to talk to. He really yeah. was. <laughs> so when was the? How old were you, Merle, when you when you took your first boat, where you were in charge of your own uh, boat? Well, it, it was it was it was a process, really. When I when I was six and started to do the do the river, Dad would pick a, a rabbit or two or a slow part or two, you know, and he'd say, "Okay, stand up here and you know learn this." And so e- each trip, you would do that same part plus some extra. So it was it was kind of a process. But uh, I I did my first. Um, my first sweet boat all the way through with a, uh, with a baggage boat when I was 15. Wow. It was about three years before you could get a license. And, and as long as you weren't, uh, as you weren't hauling people, um, you could, you could do it. So I started, uh, I started running a boat all the way through when I was, when I was 15. And so you took uh, food and groceries and other stuff. Yep. Baggage and people's yeah. gear and, you know, I had all the, all the cooked stuff and that kind of, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like the load so that everybody else could haul, haul people. Yeah. That's really cool. So, um, you mentioned earlier, your dad's, uh, kind of his mandate was we all work until the work's done. Then we play. So what did you guys do? for fun after the, and no, a lot of people would think boating, there's nothing work about that. <laughs> it's all fun. Oh, oh, there is. <laughs> so, uh, so explain that a little bit. <laughs> well, in, in every job, regardless of what you do, it, sooner or later, it turns into work. Yeah. Absolutely. Even if you're, even if you're having fun, which it, it was, I mean, we, we hunted and fished and, and whitewater rafted for a living, but yeah. it was a darn lot of work. And uh, dad, dad had a, a saying that he borrowed from, I think it was, I think it was Boyd K. Packer who, who quoted it. Um, and he said, use, if you can remember, use it up, wear it out, make it do or, or do without. Yeah. And, and our business, uh, that's, a, that's exactly the, the way we, we perform. You know, we, uh, we learned at an early age that, that work was something that made you made you you had to use your head for something besides a brick that keep your ears from slamming together. Yeah, right. And and you had to you had to make do with what you had. In fact, 
it's funny you should you should bring up these old stories i had a i had a couple of guys fishing down at our our fishing lodge fishing steelhead one day and i uh, i had to go up and get six of those big tall um propane bottles so about 175 pounds a piece you know yeah and i i put those in my jet boat and, and run down to the lodge and and it'd been a long day and I was tired and I thought, you know what, I'll unload those, those propane bottles in the morning and I'll just leave them in the boat overnight. Yeah. So I get up the next morning and go down and there's my boat. And the only thing that's sticking out of the water is about the, the pilot's seat forward. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what had happened was there was a hole in a rubber boot where the steering arm goes out the transom. Yeah. And when that load of propane was was in the back, that was down in the water, and so it just sat there and leaked all night long. Oh. And and in the morning when when I went down, I had a sunk boat. And this I, oh, I was about maybe nineteen or twenty at the time. And you know, here, here I am all alone with with two guests. Yeah. And they they have to get out and hit a hit an airline that day. Oh. And I've never. I'd never dried out a, an engine, you know, or, or resurrected a boat like that. So yeah. well, we, we pulled it out to where you could get a bucket in there and, and bail it out and get it back to floating again. And, and then I changed the oil and I pumped the water out of it and I had to pump the water out of the gas tanks. And, and I just barely made it to the end of the road with those guys so that they could hit their flight. But, you know, it, it, it's one of those things you, you make do with, with what you got and, yeah. and you have to use your head and, and you're down there alone a hundred miles from salmon and nobody's there to help you out. And you've got to be, you know, you got to be thinking and you yeah. got to, you got to put stuff together. We have to dry out the ignition system on it so that it would work and, and uh, change the oil three or four times in order to get, uh, you know, the water out of the engine and, and uh, you know what? That was a learning experience for me. I, I, that was the last time ever that I decided eh, something can wait. You know? right. it, it, if, it, if it needs to be done, it needs to be done now. And that has followed me uh, literally all my life. You know, I, that was a hard, hard lesson to learn. <laughs> you know, but, but you just didn't sit down and, uh, and call for help. I mean, no. you. It, Perhaps there was no help to come. That was, that was one reason you didn't. But the fact is, I think that what you just described, Merle, was uh, was kind of the way that um, a lot of us grew up. Um, you just figure stuff out. You don't uh, throw in the towel um, because you have to. You don't have a choice. You have to either, well, in your case, it's either walk out or ride out on your boat. So one or the other, the choices are obvious. <laughs> You're going to get this boat going. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I, I think that, you know, in, in all of the, the work that I've ever done as an adult, um, every time I sat in a job interview and somebody would say, okay, you know, talk about your ideals, your values. Um, what are you going to bring to the table? And, you know, I, I don't think anybody would argue the fact that the working anywhere is all about problem solving. You got to figure out what the problem is, first of all, sometimes, and then you have to figure out how to solve it. And it seems like every day 
we're, we're doing something like that in the workplace. And better to learn that stuff when you're a kid than when you're a grown man and you're in the middle of, of a uh, situation, you know, and suddenly you got you got to problem solve. And I think, you know, people have asked, what's one thing that you carried out of your, your childhood that is useful later on? And I think that's it. How to figure out what a problem is and solve it. You know, when you, when you get right down to it, every job, regardless of what it is, and, and that includes prostitution, is, <laughs> yeah. is merely solving a, a, a need. It's, yeah. a, it's you're supplying a solution to a perceived need and someone is willing to pay you to, to, for that solution to the need. You know, we might say uh, I'm a salesman. We might say I'm, I'm a, I'm an outfitter and guide, you know, uh, whatever, whatever job that is. But what you really are is, is a, a provider of a solution to a need that someone's willing to pay you for. Yeah. And, and that's what work is. And some, you know, some solutions and some needs are easily met and some needs are very difficult to meet. Uh, I find it interesting that right now the trades, uh, electrical, plumbing, uh, you know, contracting, those kinds of guys are making money hand over foot now because there are no plumbers. There are no electricians, you know, and and the, the, the economy has, has kind of turned the corner into this, into this more service-related uh, economy. And the guys that are, are the trades, the welders, the electricians, and the, and the, um, the, the plumbers are, are making, you know, 75, 100 bucks an hour because uh, that need is, is there and there's nobody to fill that. Yeah, you, you are spot on, spot on with that. You know, I, my youngest son um, hated school and uh, vowed that when he was old enough, he would not step foot in the classroom again. <laughs> and so we sat down and had a little visit. And I said, look, you know, um, by all rights and purposes, you're a grown man. You, you think like a grown man uh, in most respects. But on this situation, you're going to have to understand that when you get out into the workforce, you're going to have to work twice as hard as everybody um, because you don't have that education. So here's what you can do. And we sat down and talked about solutions. Learn how to weld. Learn how to frame. Learn how to drive trucks. Learn how to drive a forklift. Learn how to do some of the stuff that nobody else is doing, and you'll be successful. And you know that guy is 26, 27 years old and doing extremely well. And so, you know, I, I don't have much, uh, much time for people who complain that they, they can't figure out what to do because all the good stuff's taken. I don't believe that. I believe that there's a lot of self-made people around and they just get, they just figure something out. They figure oh, out what they're good at. You darn right. Pace it down. That is, that is absolutely the truth. And, you know, a, a degree in underwater basket weaving isn't going to get you a job. Right. There, there's so many um, degrees out there and educations that you finish up your last day of school and you go out and look for a job and they're not there. Yeah. And, 
and you know the if you had a i will i will love my father and praise his holy name till the end of the time because he taught me to weld when i was about 12 yeah and, you know there was no time in my life that i couldn't fall back on on the things that he taught me the the welding the electrical work that we did in building the lodges and and I could always fall back onto a trade and my ability to, to just like we talked about earlier, to perceive a need and supply a solution. Yeah. And, they, and somebody would pay you for that. Absolutely. That's a, you know, that's I, a, same thing. I remember um, I got laid off and uh, it was years and years ago and the economy was rough and there weren't a lot of jobs. And I had to, uh, I walked in and, uh, talked my way into a position as a, uh, a Finnish worker just because my dad taught me that stuff when I was a little kid. Sure. This is how you, this is how you lay for Micah. This is how you frame a doorway. This is, you know, all those things. And um, same with my meat cutting business. Um, you just figure it out and you do it and, and you figure out how to please your customers and what to do. And, and then you just do it. And uh, I remember one position, the guy's like, you know how to do such and such? And I said, yep, I do. And I knew a little bit about it, but I wasn't a professional. But by the time um, it was time to do that work, I knew how to do it. And I did it well. And sometimes you just have to, <laughs> you just have to bowl your way in, you know? Oh, that is, that is so true. It, it just, it just is absolutely the case. There are uh, there are so so many people out there that uh, that are are looking for uh, you know the the hundred dollar an hour job to start. Yeah. And I know so many people that started to the ground floor doing nothing but but maybe sweeping the floor in a weld shop, and yeah. and now they're making you know now they're making one hundred and fifty bucks an hour, uh, you know, underwater welding or or something like that. You know, right. something something really big that they just, they just stuck with it and yeah. they had a vision and, yeah. and they were willing to put in the time, just like you said, you know, maybe they didn't know it all right up front, but, but they had the, the, the stick to itiveness and the guts to, to, to keep going and, and to, to do the job as best they could. And, and at the end of the day, by golly, they had them a job. You bet. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, it's I'm a big fan of Mike Rowe. Um, you may remember he's like, the guy who uh, did yeah. the Dirty Jobs um, movie. He's a good guy. <laughs> yeah, and and you know his uh, his shtick is absolutely right on, and I I admire him for for pushing and promoting these types of uh, careers. You know, and in, in welding and plumbing. And uh, and electricity and framing and you know all the all the stuff. And I kind of chuckle because uh, those who have worked in those fields, we all have stereotypes for the people who do it. You know, the plumbers or the roofers. (laughs) And there's there's a pecking order of those guys on the on the job site. (laughs) Oh, the roofers are here. Oh, those framers <laughs> or the drywallers. The drywallers, yeah, <laughs> yep, that's right. The drywallers. I knew a lot of drywallers. 
those guys were the crustiest guys I ever knew. But yeah. you know what? They were a lot like the roofers in some ways. Just just crusty and and they would take their life, they would take risks every day. You see those roofing guys grabbing their their uh roofing material, jumping on top of it and sliding down the roof and hooking their hammer in right at the right spot and putting their nails in, and it's just incredible. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's uh skilled labor. <laughs> yeah. Really is, and you know they they like to call those guys uneducated. Man, oh, they, they have an education that you can't buy. Yeah, you know, that experience is uh, is uh, you can't put a price on that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Merlin, in closing this uh, this particular discussion up, what is the in your work now? What do you do? Um, Every day that you think back, okay, I'm glad that um, I learned this when I was young because I still use it now. Are, are there any specific things that you you think about in your work now? Oh, man, yeah. Uh, and, and the list is long and distinguished, and we could go on for probably another couple hours. But probably the, the most important thing, uh, I think that, that I that I've learned is 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 how to be valuable. Yeah. You know? And and one of one of the ways you do that is to always have the same day every day. You know, you show up, you put that smile on your face, you you do the job that you've been contracted to do. Uh, you do an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, and and when you're done, um, you you leave the job there. Um, I was I was for about five years four years, I guess it was, um, plant manager for Asphalt Zipper. And one of the things I, I'd like to, I like to tell the guys was, you know, the, one of the, the best ways to make your day worse is to bring your, your home problems to work. Yeah. And one of the best ways to, to lose your home and, and all everything there is to take your work problems home. Yeah. And, uh, and that, probably has done more for me to just have to have the same day every day. You know, I, I get to work at six o'clock in the morning and I, I try to have the same day. I, I try to, to, to do the things that, that I'm asked to do by my boss in, in the way that he wants, he wants them to do. Um, one of the, one of the real benefits that I have is, is I have a, a boss that doesn't micromanage. Yeah. And he, he, expresses to me what the expectation is and then he expects me to use my my brain to you know to accomplish the task at hand and and what we you always find in that situation is that the person that's not being micromanaged actually comes up with maybe unheard of ways of doing things because now his brain's in gear where if you're micromanaged and, and you're being told every little move to make, you take that, that thinking ability away from that person and all he is is a robot. You know, you, yeah. you can train a monkey to do an awful lot of tasks if, if he's micromanaged. But, but you, you as an employer, if you, if you turn that thought, press, th thought process back over to, you know, to an employee and say, here's the expectation, here's the job, 
I, I don't care how you do it within reason, do it right. As long as the end result is at least this or better. And most of the time they rise to the challenge and it's better. And I think that realization that, that I was instilled with when I was a young, a young man probably has done more for me in, in my career and my profession um, than anything else. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to BizBreak, a product of Voice Right Media.